I'll say for us, I think, it isn't that we should be committed because we're married. It's that we're married because we're committed. Worst thing that can happen, and I've seen it happen in so many marriages, is that slowly over time, the tone is just got enough negativity that the romance and the spark goes to sleep. Take a girl and a guy, and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. Hi, I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Check us out online at couplesynergy.com or on Facebook and Instagram at couplesynergy. And please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couple Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for over 20 years. You know, everyone says you should work on your relationship but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach people what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of with the partner they fell in love with. On today's episode, we welcome John and Anna Mann. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. John Mann is co-author of more than 30 books, including four New York Times bestsellers and five national bestsellers. His classic 2008 parable, The Go-Giver, earned the 2017 Living Now Book Awards Evergreen Medal for its con contribution to positive global change. Anna Mann earned her degree in clinical psychology before going on to serve as an educator, therapist, corporate trainer, speaker, and coach. She currently coaches Go-Giver Marriage clients and leads the Go-Giver Marriage Coaches Training Program, training coaches from around the globe. Thank you so much, guys, for being on our podcast today. Oh, it's our pleasure, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And it's really wonderful to talk to a couple that's doing couples work and helping couples in their marriages. And we understand you also have a book that's coming up in, in March here. And so we want to definitely get to all of that. But first, before we get to that, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? Uh, how old are you and how long you've been together? <laughs> My wife shouldn't say how old she is, but I'll say how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> I am in my late 30s, um, and no, it's not true. I'm sorry. Um, I was I was once in my late 30s. No, I'm I'm in my 60s. I'm pushing 70, and um, I always imagined that you know, that my my first marriage would be forever, but it turned out that it wasn't. And it wasn't until close to my 50s, my late 40s, that I um, I finally was fortunate enough to discover the relationship with my my best friend and and best companion. Um, so for me, marriage is something that I really treasure at this point in my life. It's, it's, uh, it's like the second half century had a surprise for me that I wasn't expecting. Um, so it's delightful to be working with, with Anna on, on this project that we're doing, this work that we're doing. Sweetheart? I guess what I, what I is, we've, we've been together for 25 years, and um, for, for 10 years, John was really really wanting to get married and i was the one that was saying you know we should wait we should wait um we had five teenagers between us um, oh, wow. and so doing the brady bunch with five teenagers um 
was not exactly in the plan. But also, I really, I really felt that both of us had come out pretty bruised from our previous marriages. And I think that we both had work to do. And I knew we had work to do. Um, and I really wanted us to do that. I, I, you know, I, I remember saying to John, you know, you have to spend enough time with somebody until you see red flags on the field. You know, it, there's going to be things that come up. And when they come up, if you can't process them and, and, and get resolved, then that's a sign. That's a clue. That's a big clue. So, um, so we dated for 10 years before we got married, um, which was- <laughs> Which very, I resisted very... wholeheartedly. I mean, I, I was absolutely sure that if we didn't get married right now, I would die. I would just die. That would be it. Um, but I, I, I don't know. Somehow I listened to her and it turned out that she had wisdom that, that uh, was greater than mine. And she was right. And we did. It was, it's been a, a, a wonderful process. And I did not die, by the way. So for 10 years, you hung on there. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Can That's you right. tell us the story of how you met? Yes. Do you want us to do that, sweetheart, or me? We actually met um, working for a national magazine. John was the um, editor in chief and I was the senior editor. And um, we also had a, a business collaboration at the same time that, that was you know, a place in business where we had met as well. So it was an interesting journey. We would, um, he lived in Virginia, I lived in Massachusetts. We would travel to New York to do the final edits and all of the <clears throat> final layouts for the magazine, <coughs> excuse me. And, you know, we were both very gun shy, you know, so we were going to dinner because we were having working dinners, if you will, in New York, and we were both foodies. So we kind of bonded around yummy food. Um, but the conversation was really lively. And I'll say this about John. John is like, you know, a brilliant intellectual. I mean, he just really knows a lot about a lot of different topics, but he understands writing inside and out. He was the best editor I've ever worked with in my life. And I learned so much from him. So our friendship just became really solid. And um, over time, I remember he knew I was really like, you know, well, nope, not gonna have any more marriage, not gonna have any more boyfriends. Um, he actually said to me at one point, you know, at some point you're gonna start dating again. And when you do, I just want you to know, I'm gonna be the first guy in line. The first time I met Anna, I mean, we actually literally the very first time we had a conversation, she told me she really loved my articles. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's a nice thing for her to say, but has she really read them? And then she proceeded to quote from one of them. And I was so impressed. <laughs> so she was my she was one of my biggest fans right from uh, right from the get go. And we had this we had this. We really became best friends over the years. We became uh, uh, not only colleagues, but, but fantastic friends. And when the romantic dimension entered the picture, I don't know why, but I think we were both so surprised um, at that. And then, and then tickled and then delighted. And then here we are, um, you know, it just kind of blew into this, this incredible uh, romance that, that, that lives to this day. But I think the fact that we were such good friends and that we met on a mind level and so many, so many levels and had that sort of professional time and, and conversational time together, we really got to know each other well before there was even any kind of question about, well, are we a couple? So I think I, I, I treasure that early beginning. And what was it about each other that you fell in love with? 
<laughs> she was so sharp and so, it was two things for me. One is she was so sharp, so so intellectually quick. She, she just knew so much. I mean, she just said that about me, I know, but I'm gonna throw it back at her. She's my better half. But, and the other thing was she was so thoughtful. Uh, Anna is the most thoughtful person I've ever met. By which I don't just mean nice to other people, but also really thinks about things. She genuinely thinks, reflects, thoughtful in the real sense of the word. Um, so we could go anywhere on any topic, and it could just go on and on like this countryside behind me, and just kind of rolling hills of thought and exploration. Um, so that's, you know, that's where we began. And and for me, there were many dimensions. One was that he's. Um... He's very kind. I mean, he's one of the kindest people I've ever met. I mean, he's, he's generous beyond generous. I mean, he gives back to business colleagues and friends in ways that are just really meaningful and rich. Um, and I was just in awe of that because he was so, so confident about himself. He never felt, I mean, I really learned from him that there's absolutely no need to be competitive in the world. Like there's plenty to go around. Um, so he has a kind of abundant mindset. Um, I also feel like for me, because there were five teenagers, it really mattered to me that our kids did not see each other as mom's replacement or dad's replacement and therefore to have an antagonistic viewpoint. And so I wanted the kids to have plenty of time to observe us, to get to know us uh, with no pressure whatsoever. And he was really on board with that. I mean, he really felt like it was extremely important that, you know, we were not going to just smash together and, and, you know, make the kids deal with it. Um, that's huge. And that's, yeah, <sighs> it's important. Yeah. Especially when they're in that young developmental stage of being, you know, these kids were between 13 and 19. Mm, so gosh. they really were right in the, in the middle of adolescence. Yeah. And, I, and I, I want to add to that, too, that, that when we did eventually become a couple and we actually be, began to cohabit the same space, that space was was in the state where Anna lived, Massachusetts, not in Virginia, where I, where I had been. So um, it, her, her daughter specifically, her child, um, was the one who became my stepchild legally. But the, developing that relationship, I approached with such care. It's like I knew I didn't know how to do this right. But I also knew there was a way to do it wrong. Uh, there was a way to do it too fast and too pushy and to just, you know, be too close, be too distant, be, you know, too stern, be too laissez-faire. So that's really been a fascinating exploration. And the three of us are just so tight. I mean, just so tight. So that's been really a fringe benefit. Is that is that why it took 10 years, you know, of dating? Is that because you guys were taking that time to, to really kind of merge together in, in an appropriate way? That's a real part of it. And, and I'll say yeah. that um, John, during that 10 years, had a bedroom on the opposite end of the house downstairs with a private bath away from the bedroom that I had and the bedroom my daughter had, were, mm -hmm. which were upstairs on the other end of the house. And the so for me, it, yeah, he, he was in the guest room when he visited. He was only there for a couple of weeks a month. And the other weeks he was in Virginia with his children. Um, so it was very important to me that our, my daughter never, you know, at 12 years old, never walked in and found mom in bed with another guy, which was happening to her in her other parenting relationship. Oh. And so it was very confusing for her. And so John not only completely understood it, 
but he was really in honor of it. I mean, he kept um, complete physical boundaries from her and was just very, very appropriate. And also we made a decision that um, any kind of reprimand or any kind of boundary holding with my daughter was mine and that he would not enter that right. territory because not my job. I feel like a, a lot of merging couples come together and suddenly there's a new dad figure and he yells at you. And we were really, really clear that that wasn't going to happen with any of our kids. Same in the other side of the, of the other, other children, you know, who were, you know, getting closer to being adults. They were older than my daughter, but same, same thing, respect for their boundaries and respect for them. And so, yes, that is part of why it took us longer. Um, by the time we finally married, we had an absolute applause from friends, family, and it was my daughter who sat down on the side of my bed one night and said, mom, you just got to do it. You got to marry John. <laughs> I just, I want to, I want to actually, I just want to actually add there that, that in, in the book over here, in the book, there's the first half of the book is a story. It's, it's a parable. And the second half is more, more a guide, but in the, in the parable, in the story part, there's a, a character as a woman who relates this story about her daughter sitting her down and saying, mom, you should marry Jackson and how floored she was. We plucked that story right out of our own history. That was, that was Anna's daughter who sat her down and said, mom, you should marry John. And Anna was like, really? What? Well, why do you say that? And she said, because he makes you happy. And um, when we reached the point where the kids were telling us to get married, <clears throat> I actually asked her permission as well as Anna's mom, her own, only living parent at that time. I asked them both, I told them both that I was going to propose before I told Anna. Well, before I, yeah, before she knew. <laughs> and uh, so I got, I got the daughter's permission to, uh, to ask for her mom's hand in marriage. This, this is pretty old fashioned, if you ask me, but I like it. And moms, awesome. I, mom. I, I and moms. For, and moms. Uh, Jean was a single mom when we got together and I asked oh, yes. her son, you know, for permission as well. And he was Good 10 at that you. time. So I, I think this is really oh, huge, the points that you guys are bringing up here, because, you know, as you know, the, the leading family structure in the United States is the blended family. And yes. there isn't much guidance out there for blended families on how to come yes. together and how to integrate the kids. And, you know, the, the way that you guys did that, it was very uh, just really putting the kids first. You know, I want to say, too, so like raising oh, teenage yeah. girls. And the confusing messages they're getting about sexuality yeah. and appropriateness yes. and to to hold yeah. that boundary, that almost old fashioned, you know, in my lifetime, in your guys lifetime, we went from watching Fred and Wilma be in twin beds across the room from each other to watching yes. people have sex on regular TV shows. And it's, yeah. it's like mind boggling. And when we talk to moms and they're like, well, isn't it empowering if I let my daughter wear whatever she wants? You're like, and they're not empowering learning. is the wrong word now yeah. it is not empowering. absolutely the wrong word so that's really awesome that you guys are role modeling mm -hmm. that that respect and boundary and appropriateness that's awesome you know, so it's, how, you do know you guys, it's how do you guys make that decision to 10 years in you know when is it time for you guys to get married besides the fact that everyone else is telling you to do it one thing i'll say for sure is that is that personally i did not have that time the first time around and I think I would, you know, retrospection is, is difficult. It's always, hind, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But I think my life would have been well served if I had taken that time, or at least some time more than I did my first time around. Um, in any case, in this case, 
10 years, you know, at the end of 10 years, my, my kids from, from, from before were, were all, you know, over 18 and we're all kind of creating their own lives. Um, as we've told you, Anna's daughter had, was already pushing her to marry me. Uh, and for myself, I had gone through a, a sort of a, a curve in those 10 years. Initially, I desperately wanted to get married, as I've said, or I knew I would die. Um, Anna said no. And we put on the brakes and we developed our relationship over time. I then over a few years reached a point where I realized that I had some real doubt about whether I could be married, whether I was in my mind, the marrying type, the marrying type as if there is such a thing. And I began to wonder if I would just, if we did get married, if I would somehow mess it up because the first time around, I never planned for that marriage to go south. I always expected that my marriage would last my whole life the way my parents did. And so I was still kind of shaken to my core that my first marriage hadn't worked out. And, you know, years into our 10 years, probably five, six, seven years, I was still really wondering, am I, can I do this? Will I, will this work? If we get married, will it go south? And I remember one day I said to Anna, we were driving along, and I said, you know, I really admire Goldie Hawn and, and Russell, uh, uh, forgot his last name, Russell. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, yeah, Kurt Russell, yeah, not Russell Crowe. So I really admire these two. You know, they've just been devoted to each other for years and years and years and years. And at that time, these two weren't married. And, and, I, and uh, after I said, I really kind of admire them. They're not married, but they've just stuck together for years. We drove along, and there was this sort of silence in the car. And then I thought to myself, <laughs> That was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> so then I, we rode along for a bit and then I added, but you know, I, I, I could see myself getting married and I could feel her go. <sighs> and within a year, I proposed, uh, it was just time. We both knew we were ready. Our kids were ready. We were ready. Yeah. And I really was we just ready knew. well before that, but I also felt like it was, it was just an you know, important that all the kids were on board and we were really also in our work life, we were ready. John had launched a new career as a writer in the middle of the 10 years. And he was writing book after book after book and New York was calling. You know, it was like he, he had become the darling of parables. I mean, he wrote many parables and they were really, you know, going, it was going well. And I just felt like, you know, there's a timing. You know, I wanted to make sure that we didn't just like, um, you know, start planning a wedding is even a small wedding is, is a lot of work. Um, I joke with him that, you know, people, people, you know, their, their relationship gets affected by, you know, remodeling a house and by planning a wedding. <laughs> and, and, you know, that these are stressful things. So we tried to make it as simple and beautiful as possible. And um, we, we were also on the same page spiritually. We really had the same values and the same core elements of what we wanted. So we had a beautiful church wedding, you know, with our closest friends around us. And, and it was very planned and lovely. So, you know, I feel like we really took care. So I want to add to that, 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 that we also went through in those 10 years, some, some real difficulties. Anna has painted a very lovely picture of my early career as a writer, but also part of the the years before that, and even in the beginning of that, we struggled financially. We both went through some real financial struggles. We went through some personal struggles. We went through some storms. You know, there's this tree in our book, which was which is an image that's there for a reason. I think we weathered a lot together. And by the time we got married, 
we both knew that the roots of our tree reached really far down. And you know, nothing in life is certain, I suppose, but we felt as certain as we could feel that come what may, we were us. We were just us. You know, there's nothing's going to shake our tree. Um, and now it's many, many, many years later. We've gone through many, many other difficult things, um, as, as, as has the country. But, you know, nothing shakes us, really. Well, what is your guys' us. perception of being in a relationship versus being in a marriage? And a lot of people that, that aren't married, they kind of go, it's just a piece of paper. I really don't need it. Is there a difference for you guys? Is that going through that process and redefining your commitment? Is that, how would you, how would you guys define that? This is such a great question. I don't even know if we have yeah, the same answer. A, I can't wait to find, can't wait to find a, out. It's a really great question. Um, for me, I, and I think I'm speaking for both of us, we care deeply about the commitment of marriage. And we really, you know, when people ask us all the time about our book and about the secrets in the book, we say, you know, the secrets are more impactful and powerful if you're in a committed relationship, because then you know there's no back door and you're making the effort. And the other thing that I would add to it is that neither one of us, the one thing that was clear was that we were both heartbroken when our marriages ended for our kids as well as for ourselves and that you know we never expected to get divorced my marriage lasted 21 years mm. my first marriage i was not expecting to get divorced it came as a complete shock to me um so i was you know i i really didn't want my child to go through that again and i also really wanted to model for her and for all our children, which we're very equal with as well, financially, in terms of support in all kinds of ways, we're extremely equal with our kids. Um, so I just wanted them all to know what it looks like when you marry your best friend and the relationship has an ease to it. There's a solidity, um, but there's also a deep commitment. So I feel like I would take a bullet for John and he would take a bullet for me. Yeah. That's for sure. I, I would I would add to that. My perspective might be just a tiny bit different, or it's a different version of the same picture. I, I don't think the piece of paper. Um, I think the piece of paper memorializes the reality. I don't think the piece of paper makes the reality. Let me say it differently. I don't think, and, and I'm not saying that this should be true for everyone, and I'm not sure it is true for everyone. But I, I'll say for us, I think it isn't that we should be committed because we're married. It's that we're married because we're committed. Um, the the reality of our relationship, uh, the the solidification of our relationship, the 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 joining of our relationships. And we, we in the book we have a diagram, which is a very simple diagram, two circles, and and they have an overlap, and it just represents the two individuals who who remain whole people, independent whole people. But there's an area of overlap that defines the the us, defines the 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 new entity that's created when the two of us join. And, and I like to describe it as it's almost like there's a third person in the room. You know, there's you and there's me, and then there's this thing, which happens when the two of us are together, which is the usness of it. And for us, that third thing, that entity, that overlap of the two of us was such a solidly established viable being that 
it wasn't going anywhere. If we hadn't gotten married, it was, wouldn't have gone anywhere. Although I think after a while we would have said, why the heck aren't we married? <laughs> um, but that reality was there. And I think Anna had such great wisdom in saying no 10 years earlier, because as passionately as I loved her, as much as I was just overwhelmed by how much I, I adored her, her person, her character, her personality, we didn't have that established overlap yet. We didn't know enough each other about each other. Um, so that would have been a case where if we'd gotten married then, we would have then had to fill in the gaps to make that a reality. It would have been a piece of paper first and then the marriage would have kind of gradually filled in. I think we filled in the reality first and then the piece of paper was just like, how, how could we not? That's, that's amazing. Now, the the challenges that you kind of alluded to that you guys both went through, you know, is that what eventually led to writing the book, The Go-Giver Marriage? I think it's part of it. Um, I, I'll say that for years, even during those difficult times, and there are various difficult times, for years, we had friends who would say things to us like, what is your guy's secret sauce? Um, what, what is it? What, why do you guys, like, even when things are difficult, you just look so happy together. Um, are you faking it? <laughs> no, we're not faking it. <laughs> um, and so it, it's, uh, we have, we've had friends who said, you know, can you, can you share your secret sauce? And that's kind of what we, what we strove to do. We, it's, it's not just us. It's like every marriage we've observed, and there's so many of them, starting with our, both our sets of parents, every marriage we've observed that has this kind of, it isn't just the kindling burning, it's the hardwood lots. It has this kind of long lasting, deep rooted love and devotion that is so clearly not going anywhere, that is here for the duration. We, we after a while of being in that ourselves, we started saying, okay, maybe we can reverse engineer this and actually put it on paper because it would just be such a service to people. Uh, so it, it was both the struggles and also the fact that we went through those, we've always gone through those struggles with our roots never being shaken. We wanted to, we wanted to share that, share that. It's, it's our love letter to the world. And, and I would add that as a therapist, I've wanted to write about marriage and about this topic for a long, long time. I've studied yeah. with a number of the greats out there. I, I was trained early on in my career in Gottman's work and I've studied with Terry Reel and you know, there's other people that I, you know, the Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt, I mean, they're just brilliant. So I, I feel like I've, I've constantly been renewing um, the way I feel about being a therapist and the way I feel about it in relation to marriages, because I know from my own experience of being in couples therapy, that it really does take two people to make the therapy work. Both people have to be on board with saving the marriage. Um, and that happens in a lot of um, in a lot of circles of therapy, and, and you guys probably know it very well. You know, when there's an impasse, some per sometimes one person already has their foot out the door, mm -hmm. and they're coming to therapy so that they'll look like a nice gal or a nice guy, and they don't want to look like the bad guy who said, "No, I'm not doing therapy." So they come for a few sessions just so that they can fold their arms and say no, um, and. So I, you know, when the original Go-Giver came out and when the original Go-Giver was written 15, 16 years ago, when it first came off the printer, I read it and I'm the first reader on all of John's books. And I remember saying to him, this book is brilliant. 
because it's a business book, but it's a book about being somebody who's generous of spirit, being somebody who's a giver, being not competitive, but rather a giver. And it's a brilliant book and it's sold over a million copies. I remember saying to John, this is a brilliant book and it would make a great book about marriage. Mm. And so that seed was planted and we take long walks every day. Sometimes we walk three miles, four miles, five miles. And we would go for these long walks and talk about what the elements of marriage are. What are the key elements that really make a union powerful? And that's how we developed the secrets. So it, it came together over time. Even before John wrote the parable, we knew what the secrets were going to be. And I wrote the second half of the book, um, which is really how do you put it into action in your, in your marriage, as well as a theoretical understanding and underpinning of what each secret means, because the secrets are based in developmental theory. You know, what you needed as a child, you still need as an adult. Mm -hmm. And so each one has, you know, a real background in psychological theory. Let's go with um, the top and the bottom, right? What is the most important thing that you guys do to keep your marriage healthy? And what is the most destructive thing someone could do to break their marriage, like not feed it? I love that you said it that way, by the way, feed it or not feed it, because that's, that's it just yeah. it gets so accurate, so accurate. That's exactly what it is. It has to be, you know, the, the feeding and caring. So caring and feeding of a marriage. You first, sweetheart. Well, I think that, you um, you know, I'll, I'll be happy to speak to it. I think that one of the things that we do is we really have a spirit of generosity in our marriage. There's, you know, we, and, and, and the centerpiece of our book is about dropping the scorecard. And so I feel like, when couples have a scorecard, and there's a beautiful line in the book that says a 50-50 marriage is a formula for failure. Mm. Um, and it's delivered by you know, a particular character who's sort of the wisdom factor in that moment. Um, but it's the truth. You know, when your little scorekeeper is up and, and activated, you know, and it's like the reticular activating system of your brain. You, know, you can pay attention to all the things that irritate you, or you can pay attention to all the things that you love. Sort of which channel do you want to choose? Do you want to choose the negative channel or do you want to choose the positive channel? And so I feel like we really choose the positive channel. That's, you know, we're, we're always looking for ways to build each other. Um, and, and John is one of the most generous people I've ever known on that level. I mean, he has really encouraged me as a writer. He's encouraged me in so many different ways my career and my life is so much bigger now than it was 25 years ago. And I was and, on a sharp and vice versa. track. <laughs> yeah, I was on a sharp track as a speaker in, in, in the business world back then. And so, you know, it wasn't like I, I didn't have a life, but it's, it's more dimensional now. It's richer in its authenticity for who I am. I mean, I really have a heart for helping people really figure out how to save their marriage. Um, I mean, we teach beyond the Go Giver Marriage Coach Training Program. We actually do workshops around the country, helping people to understand. And they're Zoom events, so people can just book them, 10 to 30 people. Um, and they're events just designed to help us be able to explain the five secrets and explain this spirit of generosity that's the core element of our book. And in regard to the most negative, and I'll, I'll just put my thought out on it because it, 
it goes along with my favorite secret. Um, the opposite of my favorite secret is criticism. Mm. Yeah. And I think that criticism, when it's just parked at the curb, when, you know, when you come in the door and the hands are on the hips and it's like, we've got to talk, you know, or whatever the nature of the, you know, if you don't start picking up your socks or, hey, I did the dishes three times this week. What have mm -hmm. you done? Or the you know, superlatives like, like you always or you never do this, that kind of thing. Yep, yes, exactly. Yes, which leads leads it to contempt, really, right. um, because, yeah. you know, when you start saying, you know, you will you always do that? You know, it's it's contemptuous. You're that and person. Those, yeah, right. Right. And, you know, it's just a downhill slope when that mm -hmm. starts. And if people can stop that and 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 shift their viewpoint. And that's the piece that we also really, really teach and we really enforce in the book is that, you know, there's neurological, neurological grooves in your brain that are going to glom on to the groove that you are practicing. Mm -hmm. What you're speaking, what you're saying, and what you're thinking is just, you know, really, really going to reinforce your perspective and reinforce that groove in your brain. So if you're in the negative track, you know, your marriage will suffer. It just mm -hmm. will. And the worst thing that can happen, and I've seen it happen in so many marriages, is that slowly over time, the tone is just got enough negativity that the romance and the spark goes to sleep. And so they're in like a long freeze. And can I long, add to that? Yeah, go for it, John. I just want to say that, you know, and you said this, this beautiful thing, Gene, about how, you know, you have to feed your marriage or not. And I believe you're either feeding it or you're starving it. There's no in between. It isn't like it just it isn't it never stationary like level. It's either growing or it's getting starved. And um, I think Anna just spoke to it beautifully. I wanted to add to the generosity of spirit thing and the scorecard. I want to say it's really important to understand that marriage is not fair. And if you go if you go into your life or even you just go into the day, this happens in the micro level as well as the big level. If you wake up in the morning and you enter your day with this idea that your marriage is going to be fair then you're already on the wrong foot because that's not the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is not like a business transaction where you get six hours and I get six hours. You know, you do X number of chores and I have to balance that with the same X number of chores or it's not fair. And if it's not fair, then I'm not happy. That never works. Yeah, it's that's transactional. Like, that's transactional. Exactly. And, and, and it's so easy for people to slip, even people who are madly in love in the early days, as the stresses of life start to wear them down and make them tense up, it's so easy to get into the place of zero-sum thinking, where you become transactional because you want to even the score. Generosity of spirit is like always giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. When in doubt, extend kindness. Never look for an evening of the score when you perceive that somehow they're up and you're down or they have the advantage in some way and you're carrying more than your fair share of the burden. No, your share of the burden, you have to think of it as my share of the burden could grow infinitely and it would be fine. Because you know what, hers will too. On the other side of it, on the criticism side of it, I think why that's so important is that when you are in a relationship, you will make yourself vulnerable to the other person in a way that is unique. You open your kimono and you show yourself to this person in a way that you don't show yourself to anybody else on the planet. Therefore, their words, an unkind word from your partner can just wound you so deeply 
maybe far deeply than they even realize. I think a lot of people don't, don't fully grasp how deeply their wounds, their words can wound the other person. So it's, you gotta be really careful about what you say and think, because I think even if you don't say it, if you start carrying around this narrative of, of criticism, this narrative of carping and, and bitching and complaining, just grumbling it under your breath, it is just as destructive because it will come out at some point in a blow up. I like your point about the switch, you know, it's like either you're, you're doing this or you're doing that, right? And it makes me kind of think about so what we what we tell couples a lot is that you only keep score with your opponents, you don't keep score with your teammate. Right. And, you know, That's that nice. feeding and of a relationship and, you know, being a generous, you know, is that one of the secrets in the book? Because it makes me think of the, the saying givers gain. Yeah, yeah givers gain. Ivan Meisner, right? Yeah. So great. So great. Um, it, it is one of the secrets. Actually, one of my favorite secrets in the book is something we call allow. And what we mean by that, it's a little obscure, but what we mean by that is exactly what you're saying. It's giving the other person the benefit of the doubt, giving them the support, the time, the space, carrying a heavier side of the burden, if that's what they need at this moment, mm -hmm. leaving them alone, if that's what they need at this moment. Um, it's, it's acting in consideration of what they need and putting that ahead of what you need, trusting that you're feeding the us. And if you feed the us, it's going to feed you back big time. And I'll use an example of that. Um... You know, sometimes when someone has a miscarriage, you know, two or three months go by and, you know, yeah. he's, he's kind of over it. He wants to, you know, get going and let's move on. Again yes. let's, let's move, move on. on. And yeah. she's still grieving and may even be struggling with some depression because her hormones have shifted. She was pregnant. Now she's not. And I think that sometimes there's this rush for it to be okay by the one partner and for the other partner, they really need that spirit of allowance. They need support for the fact that they're grieving at a different pace than you are. And they need you to pick up the slack. They need you to maybe do the dishes or grab a load of wash or whatever, because they're moving at a different tempo now, because this is a, this hurt. You know, mm -hmm. this is very, you know, women and men process miscarriages very differently. Yeah. Um, you know, the same thing can happen when trust has been broken. Sometimes the person that breaks trust really wants it to be like, I'm trustworthy. I'm trustworthy. It's going to be okay. And the other, I'll never, the I'll other, never do it again. Yeah. The yeah. other spouse is still saying, how can I know you won't do this again? You know, they're still in that place where they're processing it. Um, so it's important to allow, we call this the for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer secret. Because, this is the worst, the poorer part. <laughs> yeah. The poorer or the, or the, uh, the worse. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example, uh, multiple years later, um, but during that 10 years um, that we were dating, I um, broke my knee in oh. 30 places. I mean, it was shattered. And shattered. since it's the joint, it's considered a broken leg, but it is the joint. So the joint doesn't move, the leg doesn't move and they don't cast it. It's one of the most painful breaks you can ever have. Oh my gosh. It took me a year and a half to walk. And if you want to know what allow looks like, this is the guy that would carry water across the room for me. This is the guy that did the dishes every night. This is the guy who would set up a stool for me so I could chop vegetables and sit on the stool because I couldn't stand for longer than five minutes. 
I mean, because I had to keep one leg lifted and, you know, with my crutches bracing me. I mean, it was a really long journey. Um, the day he proposed to me, I was still on crutches when we, when we crutched out across the balcony in Hawaii to sit at our table. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's like, these are the moments that, you know, in sickness and in health, you know, I wasn't exactly sick, but I sure wasn't in booming health. It's a good thing and, you weren't the one that had to go down on one knee, right? <laughs> yeah, because I actually did do that. And I thought, oh man, I'll tell you this, both of us, there's not a day that both of us now don't just absolutely delight in the in the amazing, extraordinary, miraculous reality that is propelling ourselves across a room on two legs. Exactly. It's like, I can walk. It didn't even happen to me, but I'm still amazed that I can walk. Uh, hardships can really do that for you. But, you know, if you ever find yourself saying, I didn't sign up for this. No, you did. You did. You signed up for the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the things that we see way too often is a breakdown in intimacy. There are so many sexless marriages and, and it's younger people, younger and younger. What have you guys noticed about that area of a relationship and and what do you do with that? I, who's first? Can I say something? You go first. I'm, I'll, make, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make it short. I, you know, I think one thing that happens is, I mean, there could be all kinds of, you know, sort of traumatic things that happen. One really silly, simple thing that happens is that people get really, really busy. They have their lives to live and there's stuff going on. And at the same time, you know, the, the initial kindling hot burning of the, of the early romance fades a little bit. And people literally forget to initiate a time for sex, a time for intimacy. They just forget to initiate and start thinking the other one should initiate. And it's not to them, it's up to the other one. And, and it just kind of falls by the wayside, not by either one's intention, because the two don't firmly have in their heads how important it is. I don't think it's taught to them how important this is, even after 30 years of marriage, even after 40 years of marriage, that this is something that you actually need to put in your calendar and consciously either schedule or at least initiate. Um, don't think it's just going to happen spontaneously like it did when you were 20, because see, maybe probably it won't. You've got to be intentional about it. People just forget to do that. I've had my say. Your turn, sweetheart. <laughs> I, I want to reinforce that in that, you know, we're great believers in date night, but we're also great believers in setting um, a, a date for intimacy yeah. that's regular, that happens all the time, that you can know for sure on this day, it's going to happen every week. If it's, you know, and it's funny because when you talk about sexless marriages, you know, there's people that don't even do it once a month, let alone twice a month, let alone every week. Hmm. And I, I just really have a strong feeling. And this is something I actually love to talk about because I think it really is something that people are really uncomfortable with. I think that um, there's a lot of trauma, a lot of people who are survivors of sexual abuse on one hand or another, there's work to be done. You know, people, yeah. you know, have their reasons why they're kind of shut down. Um, but I also really feel like, um, and I, I almost direct this to women a little bit, because I think that if you treat um, intimacy like a gift and you actually make it clear to your husband or to your wife that it's something that you love about them and that you enjoy so much with them, then you're opening the gate for them to feel, have a boost in their self-esteem 
It is a spirit of generosity. Again, that is one of every single secret is about some element of being generous. I think that intimacy is another place where generosity is called for. Um, and I think that um, I encourage people to lose the how. And, I, and by that, I mean, I think that both women and men are guilty of trying to teach their partner how to make them happy in bed. And I think that, um, you know, I have a joke with some of my clients, you know, that's why God gave you a voice, you know, because <laughs> there's nothing more <laughs> exciting than a woman who's like, or a man who's, yeah. you know, having a good time. Um, you know, there's expressing plenty, it. Yeah, exactly. There's plenty of ways to cue your partner that, that this is really good. <laughs> uh, and so I just feel like if people can treat it like a gift and, and make the space for it the same way they would make the space for date night, um, they might be just really surprised. And even little things like, you know, jumping in the shower with your spouse and, you know, just letting soaping each other or whatever, just be something that's just like a fun flirtatious moment. And in the second half of the book, we really talk about ways that you can be generous in flirting. And mm -hmm. flirting is like, you know, half the, you know, the door's half open when you're flirting. So I really encourage people to find ways to flirt with their spouse. And there's a couple examples that are just hilarious in the back of the book that just, you know, make everything feel warmed up. I mean, in, in one case, you know, this woman, you know, said a flirtatious thing to her husband while he was about to take six little boys off to soccer and they were all in the, in the van. And, you know, he turned around and flirted right back, but then he jumped in the car and drove the kids to soccer. But, you know, the, the, the tone was set. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that as much as you can keep flirting and as much as you can keep also letting your partner know they're attractive. I was going to say I, that. When I broke my leg, you know, I gained, my mother thought the way to take care of me was to serve me carrot cake every night. I gained 22 <laughs> pounds while my leg was broken. You know, I became this like little dumpling, you know, I was not feeling attractive. And John kept telling me, you know, oh, I love all your curves. You look great. You know, I mean, he was like really, really making sure that I was okay. And this is not a gender specific thing. Anna has, has so changed my picture of myself because she has gone out of her way to let me know that she found me attractive, which I would find hard to believe. I think that happens to so many of us, particularly as we age. And I don't mean, you know, become 90 years old, aging from 30 to 35, aging at any age. As we age and change, it's so easy to start feeling inadequate in terms of our physical appearance, in terms of our physical abilities, our power, our strength, everything about us. And to be constantly letting, or at least consistently letting our partner know that we really find them attractive, even letting them know that in flirtatious ways, flirtatious, but sincere, right? Not just tongue in cheek. Um, I, I, I agree hundred percent. I just think that's, you know, that's part of it. And you know, it isn't just intimacy isn't just hopping in the sack and, and doing the sexual act. I mean, right. intimacy can be, as honest as getting in the shower, intimacy, intimacy can happen in a conversation in the kitchen. Intimacy can happen on a walk around the block. There's so many forms of intimacy, but a lot of it is letting your partner know that you really think they're hot. You really think that they're wonderful. You think that they're just amazing and that you just still find them as attractive as ever, if not more so. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, that's what feeds intimacy. I, I like that distinction there because intimacy, yeah, is not just the actual act of sex, but there's the, right. the emotional intimacy 
you know, yes. that feeds into that as well. And if the couple isn't connecting at that level, then trying to connect physically is really just more about the act and you know it can actually cause more distance between the two of them so and start yeah. to feel pressure absolutely and we actually we did a whole podcast on the art of flirting you know and uh, <laughs> which was a lot of that's fun great. you know and and that's go ahead and wise word wise words on your part too because if it's just about the act i think that is what makes people shut down sometimes mm -hmm. it's like you know when somebody wants to have that quickie and it really is very almost impersonal you know it 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 really does you know sort of withdraw from the love bank if you will um, and I think it's really possible with flirting and all kinds of other ways that you're generous with your spouse to build their esteem, to build their sense of wanting to be with you, you know, because it's an, you know, an intimacy can be just a deep conversation where, you know, I've had moments where John admitted some insecurity to me about something he was working on. And, you know, I would reassure him and, but it was really an intimate moment where I felt like he let me see his real self. And that's actually what also pulls people toward a, a greater intimacy. So I think your words are really right on. So and we have you, time for two more really quick questions. <laughs> One, what would you guys like to say to a potential person that would be looking to read your book? Go ahead, John. I'm, I'm oh, okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I would say this. I mean, it's a practical thing. I would just say the book is in two halves. The first half is a story. The second half is a how-to guidebook. Um, you don't have to read the first part first. You can read them in, in, in either order. You can pick and you know pick from column A and pick from column B. Um, there will be something that you find in that book that will speak to you. And just go find that and let it speak to you and put it into practice. I guess what I would add is that the story is the most beautiful parable he's ever written. And I, I really, I've read a lot of parables um, and this, it's really short. So I, I really want people to understand that it's, it's a really short read um, and that the second half kind of gives you the more concrete, but it's also an entertaining read as well. There's a lot of client stories of people that allowed us to print the story without names. Um, and I think that it really makes it rich because when you understand you know, there's elements of codependence described and things like that. And when you understand how codependence plays out in the relationship and how it can be shifted, it's, um, it's simple, but it's powerful. And yeah, I really, really look forward to feedback too. So I, I want readers to know that our website, which is uh, www.gogivermarriage.com, that we invite feedback. And we also have um, some pre-order specials for people that want to pre-order the book, we, we did two master classes on uh, one on diffusing conflict and one on the energy and sustenance of the us. How do you create that, that real precious us in the marriage? And, um, and then also um, there's other gifts as well that, that uh, you know, we have a, a Zoom meeting or a fireside chat, if you will, that is going to be hosted by Dan Rockwell, who is one of the people who endorsed our book and loves the book. Um, and he'll be hosting that event. And that'll happen about oh, two weeks after the book launches. So anybody who pre-orders, they can go to the website and put in their, um, their whatever it is, their receipt or their, their number off the receipt. Order number. Their order number, and we'll just immediately include them. So Wonderful. It's fantastic. Yeah. We're gonna include the links in, in the show notes and everything for everyone too. Oh, lovely. So last Thank question. So what is it that your partner does 
that you know they love you. I know this is going to sound old fashioned. I know this is going to sound mundane. I know you've heard this a billion times. She cooks the most amazing food for me. It is, it's simple. It's just gloriously delicious. And I, I feel so uh, taken care of. <laughs> Can you tell we like attending? <laughs> um, my, like it, it, it's funny. Because, yeah, we love to cook. Um, but I'll tell you, John actually does little things every day, all day um, to take care of me. And one of them is he brings me a cup of tea early in the morning in bed. Before I even get out of bed, I get a cup of green tea on the bedside table. And I just sit up and I, you know, it just, it's like whether I do email or Instagram or whatever. I mean, I just sit up and just relax um, and have that cup of tea. And I don't, you know, I don't have to do anything for 20 minutes. So he is, um, he's, yeah, he's constantly giving in that way. And I just, it makes me feel so loved. John and Anna, we want to thank you so much for being on our show today. And we want to thank all of our listeners for joining us on Couple Synergy. Our passion is in helping couples and people have happy and healthy relationships. And this podcast gives us a fun way of bringing our knowledge and expertise to you, our listeners. You know, we get wounded through relationship and we heal through relationship. And we hope that by you guys sharing your story has enriched your lives and the lives of our listeners. For all of you listening, please let us know how you enjoy the show. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, our home study course, the Couples Weekend Intensive, and our premier coaching program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. And if you know someone who can benefit from this episode, please download it and share it. And thank you for listening. Until next time, synergize your life and synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.